0: Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning that you might be pleased with this holy convocation, that sinners saved by grace gathering here to worship you through song, through prayer, through the reading of Scripture, and now through the proclamation of your Word. Father, we come in and we admit that we worship other gods all the time. We know that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you've equipped us in your Spirit to be faithful to you and to you alone. I ask that you would make yourself known in such a way to us this morning that we would see our sin in committing and worshiping and bowing down to other gods as utterly sinful, that you would cause us to hate it as much as you hate it, and that you would show us the glory of Christ and the beauty of His love, that we might be forever, moment by moment, captivated by Him. We ask, Lord, that we would see that we are your people and that you've saved us by grace, And called us into this community that we might be faithful to you alone. That we might not ever again bring another false god before you. Father, I pray that during this time, that this teaching, this first commandment that you set forth in your Decalogue. Would not only be heard and understood by every soul here. But embraced with all our might in the spirit to live it out. I praise you for those you've gathered here this morning, Lord. I praise you for those that you've gathered at Creekside. We lift up this morning to you this morning, Trinity Covenant in Santa Cruz, and we pray for Pastor Troy and the faithful proclamation of the gospel in that church. We thank you so much for our brothers and sisters there and the great work they're doing in Santa Cruz, Lord. We, we pray that this morning, regardless of what Pastor Troy is preaching, that they would know that you are God and there is no other like you, and that they would be faithful to minister to one another and share the gospel in that community and be a great light and a great salt there as well. Father, we want this time to be honoring to you. We want this to be real worship. And so sanctify our hearts to that end, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. I am very thankful you're here, friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ. We've, uh, we've been working through the the book of Exodus, and we made it up through 19 and all the great work that God did to redeem His people and bring them to the base of the mountain. And last week, we had a chance to look at God descending on Mount Sinai and what that meant for this great covenant He was entering into with His people, this Hasid relationship. Um, He is calling us and commanding us this morning to a radically exclusive relationship with Him. Um, We live in a cultural moment where inclusivity dominates virtually every area of our life. In fact, exclusivity at times in certain dialogues seems to be the greatest of sins. Marriage must be open to all. Believing in one God is considered hateful and intolerant. Religious institutions, churches, and schools are being told to forsake their religious convictions and to embrace the moral revolution. Now, there are many times, I would argue, my beloved, and occasions where sharing and being inclusive is not only right, but it's biblically commanded. And there are times when it is wrong and biblically prohibited to be all-inclusive. Students, you know all too well that if you have answers to an exam because you took it in first period, it'd be wrong for you to give those answers to the student in second period, to include them in your knowledge. It is often wrong to tell others that which someone shared with you in confidence. And it is always wrong for husbands and wives to share their sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage. And as good and as giving and as inclusive as the creator of the universe is, revealing emphatically in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that he, quote, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth in him. There are things, listen, he will not share. Isaiah 42.8 He said, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield. I will not share my glory to another or my praise to idols. He will not share his glory. One of the great solas that came out of the Reformation, we can say it was the greatest sola to come out of the Reformation, was soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And so he starts the Ten Commandments with an exclusive absolute. We would expect that of this God who demands all glory being given to him. Verse 3, look with me, you shall have no other gods before me. There are no exceptions to this commandment. There are no progressive revelations that will change it. There's no plan B. All other gods, listen. All the gods are permanently and forever excluded from the presence of the one almighty living God, Yahweh, who deserves all honor and glory and praise now and forever. Amen? He will not share his glory, and he will not share you. He will not share his glory, and he will not share you. Exodus 34, verse 14, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So he's radically exclusive when it comes to his glory, and if this doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what will. He's radically exclusive when it comes to you, your relationship with him as his people. So if you find this first commandment confining, a bit intolerant, maybe in light of our cultural moment, even immoral, I pray our time together this morning changes your heart and mind entirely. I pray as we look at this incredible first commandment, we begin to understand that God, excluding glory for himself and excluding people for himself, is one of the most beautiful, radical revelations of our living God. For him and for us. So I want to look at this commandment this morning, the first commandment of the Decalogue, by looking at why he implemented it. Why did he bring it? And I want to look at that in considering he did it for his glory, he did it for man's freedom, and he did it for the work of Christ. He, he gives us the first commandment for his own glory. He gives it for man's freedom, and he gives it for Christ's work. Point number one, God's glory. Verse three again, you're going to hear this a lot because this is the only verse. You shall have no other gods before me. Someone joked and said, you're going to preach an entire sermon on that small verse? And the laugh. The, the remark to that is there are 10, 15, 20, 30 sermons on this verse. He's their God. He brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and lightning and thunder. And the trumpets were sounding and the earth was shaking. And he said, I am your God and you are my people. And here's the covenant that we're going to live in. And he begins to give them this hased relationship we looked at last week. This loyal love that he's establishing God with his people now they've already been saved and we, we sat on this for two weeks. He doesn't give them the law to save themselves. They've already been saved and he's calling them into this hased loyal, love, forever and ever relationship with him. He being their God, they're being his people. And so the Ten Commandments, it's a summary of laws of love that God has poured out upon his people. How he expects a saved people to relate to Him, how He expects them to love Him, how He's going to love them, and how they're going to love one another. And so He begins the Decalogue with the absolute command for their hearts. He says, I want your heart 100%, non-negotiable. You shall have no other gods before Me. The first question we have to ask is, who are these other gods? I mean, who is He talking about here? They're coming out of Egypt. They spent 400 years living and worshiping in one of the most polytheistic cultures of their time. We saw in our earlier studies, if you remember, some of the gods that we talked about. They had gods for everything, food, water, sun, moon, fertility, crops, protection. The more gods, the better. Because the more gods they had, the more gods would provide and the more gods would protect, and they found their freedom in their polytheism. And like the Egyptians, the Israelites worshipped those gods too. Do not think that in Egypt they were monotheistic. They were not. They worshipped along with the Egyptians. And so God starts here with the first commandment. The monotheistic God of all creation establishes an incredible precedent in human history. You see, up to that point in time, all nations were polytheistic. And so God comes in and he says, You, my people, are going to worship me alone because there is no other God but me. All the other nations had hundreds, if not thousands of gods. And he says, we're going to change that. I'm the only God. You're going to worship me as such. Second question would be, why would he need to give a law about worshiping other gods when the Bible from Genesis to Revelation only talks about one God? There's no other teaching in the Word of God that tells us there are lots and lots and lots of gods. Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God besides me, the Lord said. A righteous God, a Savior, there is none besides me. The Apostle Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. We know that an idol has, listen, no real existence. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So he gives this command, the first command in the Decalogue. Not because he believes there are all these other little mini deities running around. But he knows that that small G God lives in the heart of every man, woman, and child. That we are fantastic at making these gods and worshiping these gods and being captivated by these gods. And so this, the first commandment leads beautifully into the second. This is a prohibition against idolatry of all kinds. Not that these idols are real, but we make them real in our hearts and minds. You remember what Paul warned the Galatians about, this very danger. Galatians 4 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you, d- you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. They're not real, but you were enslaved to them as though they were. These false gods are both created by and captivated by the human heart. And when they do that, my beloved, they ruin us as image bearers. We were created in the image of God to do what? To magnify his glory. To show to the world that this God is real and powerful and good and merciful. But when we are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, we ruin ourselves as image bearers and we dishonor the one who deserves all the glory and honor. For he's the only true living God. My beloved, the the worship of anyone or anything other than Yahweh, the one true living God, denies God the glory He rightly deserves. And therefore, God will start there because it is the most grievous of all commandments to bring a God into the presence of our living God. Years ago, I took a class at at Santa Clara University, and please don't laugh at me. It was a class on the mathematics of Johann Sebastian Bach. Don't ask me why I took it. <clears throat> the class did include, though, a tour of several major churches in the area, and we got to go to Grace Cathedral, which is in San Francisco. It's the third largest neo-Gothic structure in the entire nation, largest uh, west of the Mississippi, incredible structure. And we got to go and, and look at their Aeolian Skinner pipe organ, 7,466 pipes, we got to go in the back and look. And both of these were overwhelming to my senses. The, when you go into Grace Cathedral and you see the flying buttresses and the stained glass, and then you got to, we got to go behind the scenes and we got to, to look at this 32-foot diapason pipe that went floor to ceiling. And it was overwhelming when, when the, the, um, the organ master played, it just filled the room. But as I left, I was was struck by the fact that the person who did the tour said virtually nothing about the architects or the builder of the building or the organ. And yet, they're the ones, if we were going to talk about how glorious these things were, they would be the ones you would give the glory to. They wrote it up. They designed it. They built it. Yet, all the conversation was about the building and the organs themselves. As I left there, I realized this is the universal state of all mankind, right? We we enter and we talk and we relate to God in this exact same way. We are conceived in violation of the first commandment, talking about all the good and the glory we see in creation, and in so doing, neglecting the one who made it. Romans 1, verse 21, Paul said, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, but exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before me, al-panim in the Hebrew, it's, it can mean a couple things. It can mean one in his presence or two other than me. Now, if you translate it other than me, you might be thinking of a, a truly polytheistic structure where we have a hierarchy of gods, and Yahweh's saying, you can have your other gods, but I'm going to be at the top of the list. I want to be number one. I would say that's a very poor translation. The other translation, I think this is best, and why most of your Bibles will translate it as such, God is saying, you'll have no other gods before me, against me, in my presence. Do not bring a god before my face into my throne room. And in so doing, he's saying, I, I'm not establishing a hierarchy where I need to be number one amongst many. He's establishing an exclusivity, saying, I am the only God, and you will only worship me. So a better translation might be, you must have no other God over or against me. It's an absolute, 100% prohibition of idolatry. No other gods, my beloved. Now, at the time of Moses, this would have been a most strange command. There was no other nation in the world that did not have multiple gods. So they would have heard this and thought to themselves, okay, Yahweh, you'll be first, and then we'll have all the other gods beneath you. It wouldn't have made sense to them religiously, but it would have made sense to them civilly. I mean, they would have understood. I mean, he's coming and saying, listen, I'm your savior king. You were bound by Pharaoh. You were in slavery and death. And I came as your king, and I rescued you, and I brought you out of the land. And here I am as your savior king, entering into a said relationship with you, a loving covenant with you. And so he would say to them, I'm your king. Do not bring another king into my courtroom. Do not bring an allegiance, a contract. Do not flirt with, do not entertain any relationship with any other king but me because I'm the only one. He's a jealous king. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his people. Now listen, he will not tolerate, not for a moment, the smallest, least powerful, least significant king in your life. You bring him into the throne room, and that is considered high treason. Great kings throughout history, and even today, consider it high treason if their citizens align themselves with a king of another nation. In fact, this might surprise you. I hope it does. As radically inclusive as we as a culture are trying to become, do you know that treason of the United States is still punishable by death? Do you know that? As a U.S. citizen, I'll read it to you. Whoever, owing allegiance to the United States, levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death. And so how is that possible? We don't even serve a king, yet we understand the magnitude of this type of treason. God is the king of the universe. He is the king over his people. So entertaining with, flirting with, or submitting to anyone or anything other than the king is not only not acceptable, it is downright dangerous. He deserves, he demands, 100% allegiance of the affections of his people. He wants your love above all else. And because the royal court of Yahweh is not the tabernacle, it's not the temple, it's not the promised land, it's not a church building, the presence of God is where? It is everywhere. Isaiah 66:1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That means that at no point in time in your entire life are you ever allowed to have another king come into his, his throne room because his throne room is everywhere Always. Having no other gods in the presence of the Lord is the supreme prohibition. I would argue because it is the supreme problem of fallen man. God started the Decalogue by saying, have no other gods before me because that's what we do. That's what we've done from the beginning. Bringing all these gods in. All these little gods, big gods, small gods, powerful gods, weak gods, thinking somehow they will satisfy me. All these other loves, all these other trusts. When teaching his disciples the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 14, Jesus brought great clarity to the first commandment. Listen to what he said. These are hard words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He said, Well, how does that tie into the first commandment? The first commandment is saying your love, your allegiance belongs to God first and foremost. And so Christ comes along here and he's not destroying the fifth commandment. He says in the fifth commandment to honor your mother and father. So when he's saying you must, your relationship with your father and your mother and your wife and your children must be as though it is hatred, he's using hyperbole. He's, ex- he's creating an extreme situation. Where our love for our parents, or our spouse, or our children, or our grandchildren, that's extreme love. And Jesus comes along and says, well, yeah, that's good, and that's commanded. But when you compare that love to the love that you're supposed to have for my Father, it must be as though it is hatred. That's the extreme nature of this first commandment. That's the extreme nature of the love that God is calling us to in Christ. Our allegiance to God, our fidelity to God Having no other gods before him is required if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said a little bit later, Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot have two gods. You will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. Are we clear? (laughs) The first commandment prohibits all other gods because the creator of the universe, Yahweh, your savior and king, is worthy of all glory and honor and power and praise forever and ever. Okay, point number two. Most of us, at least in our flesh, will hear that and says, you know, that's so self-aggrandizing. Why does he want all the glory? Why does he deserve all the power? It sounds very self-centered when God's saying, worship me. And it would be if he were not worthy of all that worship and praise. He is. I want us to realize this morning that the glorification and worship of God alone, it is, it is what's best for those created in his image. It is the best thing for you to have no other gods but Yahweh. Point number two: man's freedom. Verse three: you, you shall have no other gods before me. That word you there in the Hebrew, it's, the, it's in the second person singular. You say, well, so what? That means something important. He's talking to the nation, yes, but because of this translation, he's talking specifically to each individual in that nation. So he's saying to the 2.5 million Israelites standing at the base of Mount Sinai, he's saying you and you and you and you shall have no other gods but me. Personal, intimate, love, chesed relationship. It's one of the reasons I had the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, read this morning. It's one of the reasons that Jews today still say that in their morning and their evening prayers. It has been the prayer of the Jewish nation for centuries. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's saying, I'm the only one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Love is the right word here. Love is the right word that defines the first commandment because it solidifies, listen, the exclusive relationship that God is making with His people and with you individually, with you personally, because He wants your heart. You know, it doesn't surprise me, but I'm always a bit... Overwhelmed when a celebrity will stand up before thousands of people and tell the people how much he or she loves them, and the people, of course, they cheer. and I and I was thinking, you don't even know them, and you say, well, they they of course they love them because they're buying tickets and buying albums and watching movies, right? That's not an exclusive love. That's not the type of love that God is talking about here. This love here is a radically exclusive love, a relationship that he's establishing with his nation, and more specifically with each individual in that nation, which would include you if you're in Christ. Amen. You shall have no other gods before me, and in this relationship, God is saying you will know true freedom. Remember the Lord? He had just brought them out of slavery. He didn't deliver them out of the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt to make them slaves again. He brought them into the open pastures, the glorious presence of their creator, that they might truly live as a free people. Now, as a Westerner, you might be thinking, wait a minute. You know, you spent a lot of time in the last two weeks building a foundation on these Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the Two Commandments, the Two Great Commandments, and then the Ten Commandments, and then the 601 other laws in the Old Testament. If God was so interested in us being a free people, why so many laws? Because we think, at least in this cultural moment, that true freedom is being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. We believe in the Western world that true freedom comes as a result of the absence of any constraints of any kind. But I'm here to tell you, and you already know if you've lived any years on this planet, that a lack of constraints is not freedom. In fact, I would argue there's no such thing as being constraint-free. Rather, true freedom is found, now listen, it is found in living as you were created to live. True freedom is found in you living according to the purpose and manner for which God, your creator, made you. And so the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, have often been called in church history, the law of liberty or the gateway to human freedom. But the Western mind says, how could that be? If you want me to be free, don't give me any laws. And the Bible says, no, here are your laws so you can be free. How do we reconcile laws, prohibitions? Nine of the 10 are prohibitions saying, don't do this, don't do that. How can those laws lead to our freedom? Each law, as we looked at last week, Each of the Ten Commandments expresses some principle. I want you to listen, saints. I'm going to try to make some connections here that I need you thinking, all right? I need you thinking. If you need to sit up a little bit, move forward, that's good. Listen. Principles, essential features of the divine nature of God, right? Every single one tells us something about him. Have no other gods before me. Why? He's the only God. Do not commit murder. Why? God is life. Do not commit adultery. Why? God is faithful. Do not lie. Why? God is truth. Do not covet. Why? Because God is self-sufficient and self-satisfied. He needs no one and he needs nothing. Each command reveals something about God's character or we could say God's image, who he is. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're saying, all right, so you're telling us about God, but what about the restrictions? What about the restrictions on those of us created in his image? Genesis 1, 26, we're told, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In other words, you are unlike any other creature God made. God only made one creature in his own image, and that's male and female human beings. So when the image of God is reflected in the law, and we live in accordance with the law, then we're living as image bearers. And that's why we can say that it is the law of liberty and the gateway of human freedom because when we submit to God's laws, we are living as we were created to live as image bearers of God. His character nature revealed in the law are submitting to it, now reflecting that nature to the world. That's why the psalmist is able to say, Psalm 119 verse 45, listen, and don't be confused. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will walk about in freedom, for I have obeyed your laws. Causing him to cry out a few verses later, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Why? Because in the law there is freedom. Because that's how we created. In God's image. The psalmist loves God's law not only because in obeying it it brings him glory. But in submitting to the laws of God, the psalmist finds true freedom. Now, this is a striking truth, I believe, missed by many in the Western church. Today, in the evangelical Western church. The more the Christian ties his life to the gospel of grace in submission to God's laws, the more he will enjoy true freedom. And I would go one step further. One of the reasons that we are so bound as a people and so bound as a church is we continue to rebel against the very laws that will set us free, thinking somehow we've been saved by grace through faith and the laws are irrelevant. We saw last week how foolish that is. Freedom is not having the power to do whatever you want, whenever you want. True freedom is living as you were created to live in a right, obedient, God-honoring relationship with the Creator. Image bearers who live, listen, as God would live if he became a man. Image bearers who would live as God would live if he became a man. Most of you know the movie Chariots of Fire. If you have not, rent it and watch it. It's about two runners, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams, 1924 Olympics. You've probably heard this story multiple times because it's so good, pastors can't help but use it. Both were gifted runners, but ran for very different purposes. Eric Little was a devout Christian who represented Scotland. In fact, he was a missionary, and some of his friends and family said, you should give up racing, and you should just go into full-time preaching, but he said that God called him to race because when he race, races, he glorifies God. A friend of his, Harold Abrahams, was from Great Britain, and he loved his country, and he was obsessed with racing and winning He studied the sport, he threw himself into it completely, and he admitted it was his greatest passion. In the movie, we see a clear contrast between Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. They both run, but they both run for very different reasons. One runs in the freedom of the gift given to them by God that he might glorify God, the other one runs in chains because he's trying to justify his own existence. In one scene, Abraham says this. Listen, ironic his name. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again on the racetrack. I will raise my eyes and I'll look down the corridor four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Running fast is how Harold Abraham's justified his existence before a holy god. It was the little G god that he brought into the presence of God. It was that violation of the first commandment because running fast and winning the race is what he justified his life by. And if he didn't win, and he destroyed himself. He was in chains. In a different scene in the movie, Eric Little says this, probably one of the most famous lines of the movie, "I believe God made me for a purpose." And he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh my goodness. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little understood that this gift was given to him by God. So rather than use it to justify his life, rather than bringing running and winning into the presence of God, violating the first commandment, he says, it is a gift from you, God, and when I run, I'll run for your glory. And he was free in that. He was free to run for the glory of God as an image bearer, living and doing what he had been created and purposed to do by his creator. In other words, his obedience brought freedom, not slavery. So God gave the first commandment, the supreme commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, not only for his own glory, but to bless you and me and all who repent and believe in Christ with freedom. Oh, we hear a lot about it today. Today. But this is a freedom I don't hear from the talking heads or the news outlets. Freedom. Most of you heard John Piper's famous adage now, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. How have you heard that before? Of course you have. I want to add to it. I I don't want to take away, I want to add to it. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, and we are most satisfied in Him when we experience the freedom of living according to His laws. We're most satisfied in Him when we experience the freedom in the gospel of grace of obeying God. One of the reasons the Ten Commandments, I believe, is stated primarily in the negative prohibitions. There are nine prohibitions. There's only one that's in the positive. That's the fifth commandment. The reason I believe it's like this is because God wants us to be a free people. How many commandments were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? One prohibition. He said to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One prohibition. Why? Because he wanted them to eat freely from all the other trees. And so God here, he gives us the Ten Commandments and these prohibitions because he wants us to live as a free people, not bound by tens of thousands of laws, but living in a right relationship with him and our love for him and our love for one another, granting freedom to his children, living by grace. The problem is, as you've probably already realized if you've been listening at all, is that our sin nature prohibits us from having God alone as our God. Our sin nature messes all this up. We pursue God after God after God who is not Yahweh all the time, every single day. Seeking our joy, our comfort, our security, our satisfaction in everything but the true God. And in so doing, just like Harold Abraham's, we enslave ourselves and we don't even know it. We want to experience the joy and comfort that God offers, but we move to an idol and we bring ourselves in chains. And when we do that, when you you violate the first commandment, you violate all the rest. You know that. You bring uh, a God into the presence of the Lord and you say, you're going to be my God and this is going to be my God too. All the other nine fall instantaneously if you were to bring the small g God work before the Lord, so you're gonna, you're gonna make your work the most important thing you do. It defines you. It brings you joy and satisfaction. And you're gonna work and love work more than you love Jesus. You're obviously gonna violate the first and second commandment, have no other gods before me and do not commit idolatry. That's given. But you're also gonna violate the fourth commandment of a Sabbath rest. You're going to forsake the creation, rest, work balance that God established for his people in Genesis. I also would argue you'd violate the 10th commandment do not covet. But if you work really hard because you're coveting money or power or prestige, something you think you cannot get from God, and therefore you're going to pour yourself into your job, you do that and you'll enslave yourself. Maybe some of you are enslaved right now. You do that and you'll ruin yourself. You'll ruin your marriage. You'll ruin your service to the Lord and the church. What if you do marriage? You say, you you cannot love your spouse enough. Can Can marriage become an idol? Can you bring the God of marriage before the living God? Yes, of course you can. We can bring all things before God as an idol and abuse even the blessings that God gives us like two people becoming one flesh. If I love my wife, listen, if I love Lori more than I love the living God, I have violated the first and second commandments right off the bat. I've also violated the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But if God is not my first love, I've committed adultery with him by loving my wife more than I love Jesus. I would also break the ninth commandment, it says, Do not lie. So how how are you breaking the ninth commandment? When I was baptized, I made a profession, a vow of faith before God and man that I would love God most, love him first. So if I love my wife more than I love Jesus, I'm a liar. I'm a vow breaker. If I love my wife more than I love Jesus, I will destroy my marriage. I'll destroy my wife. I'll destroy my family. What about something a little more obscure? What about isolation? I find it, again, interesting that we argue as a culture for radical inclusivity and yet we hide. We're radically isolated and yet we want everybody to be included. That's not part of the sermon. You can think about that later. When your alone time, your screen time, your entertainment time, your book time supersedes your relationship with a communal God, when you desire to be alone more than you desire to be with God and his people, you violate the first commandment, you violate the second commandment. I would say you violate the sixth commandment by committing murder. You say, well, how, how does my being alone commit murder? Jesus commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. It's hard to love people when you're alone. It's hard to love as Christ loves us by isolating and hiding and staying in your home and behind that screen. I would say it's a murderous action. I would also argue, my beloved, that it is a violation of the eighth commandment, do not steal. He says, stealing? Yeah, when you're alone all the time, when you're isolated all the time, that time's not yours. That time's given to you by God. We're to be stewards of the time that he gives us. And the stewarding we should be doing with that time should be in terms of ministry and blessing and encouraging and helping others. All these gods ruin his people, they decreate those created in his image to bring him honor and glory. Every false god, whether a blessing or not, that comes into the presence of Almighty Yahweh enslaves you to sin and death. Because our freedom, listen, our freedom is inextricably tied and linked to God's glory. The more we forsake other gods from having a sway over our lives, the more glory we bring to the living God as image bearers. And the more we live as image bearers, the more free you will be in your obedience to the law. So you forsake the glory of God and you bind yourself. So how are we to overcome this devilish mess? And it is a mess, my beloved. I don't know about you, but I have false gods every day battling for my heart and mind every day. I would say every moment of every day I'm battling against those false gods. How do we live in such a way that we, every moment of every day, we enter into the throne room of the great king and we don't deny his glory and we don't enslave ourselves. We don't bring all these little G gods and say, let's just all hang out together and be polytheistic. Point number three, I pray you're still with me. God gave the first commandment for the work of Christ, Christ's work. Now, some of you still might diminish the weight of the first commandment with your own orthodoxy. So say, what do I mean? Most of you would say, I do believe if I were to ask you, do you believe in any of the gods besides the one true living God of the Bible? You say, no, I do not. Most of you would give a radically correct orthodox view of our monotheistic God of the Bible. I would argue that most of you say, I have never, ever, ever bowed down to any wood, stone, or graven image in gold or silver. And yet, your orthodoxy will fail you if you think that's the depth of the first commandment. Man's heart has not changed since the fall. My beloved Calvin was right when he said the sinful heart is an idol making factory. We produce idols in a mass production in our own hearts. One commentator said this, I loved it. He said, The reason we have trouble recognizing our private idols today is not because we don't have any false gods anymore, but because we have so many. And that's true. So many gods so many gods in the culture to bow down to, so many gods tempting you to embrace that false religion. So the question for us is how do we identify these false gods that come into our hearts and minds? How do we know them? There are lots of ways. I want to give you two. One is trust and one is love. What, Who or what do you put your trust in? And who or what do you love most? Ask those questions. You're going to get somewhere. As image bearers, listen, as image bearers of God, created in His image to bring Him glory, we are to trust God most and we are to love God most. That's simple. So when you take the trust test, when you do what we prayed about this morning, when you bring yourself before the Lord and you said, test me, Lord, try me, Lord. Who do you trust most? I mean, who do you really trust most? What little g gods Are you smuggling in all the time, into your prayer time, into your Bible time, into the church? How many small g gods did you bring into this sanctuary? When you're struggling with a particular sin, do you turn to God in prayer? Do you go to the Word? Do you go to brothers and sisters? Or do you say, you know what, I can take care of this on my own? Do you bring the idol of pride into the presence of God and say, I got it, Lord. I can take care of it. Finding yourself all alone and not fighting that sin all that well. When you have health issues arise, and most of us do, who do you turn to first? Who do you turn to first? Do you go to the great physician in prayer first? And this is not, I'm not, I'm not teaching not to use doctors and medicine. They're a blessing. But who do you go to first? Do you go to WebMG? your primary care physician or the pharmacy to get medication and once you have been medically cared for, then you pray to God? What do you trust most? Your job? Your addictions? Your friends? Your retirement? Your government? Please don't laugh. They all reveal small g gods in your life. Whatever you put your trust in above the God of the universe is a God that you bring into his presence. Love is another test, and I would say even stronger, to identify these other gods we bring before the Lord. At the heart of the first commandment is a love for God first and foremost. What? You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the top. you got to love him first above all other loves. And that means, my beloved, any love that is equal to or greater than your love for God is another God. It's a small G God that you brought into the throne room of the thrice holy God. Now again, most of you are orthodox in your faith and you will say, I love God most. My question is, does your life reflect that? Do you live as though you love God first and foremost? Ask yourself this, when your mind is free, what do you think about? I mean, you've worked a long day, the kids are in bed, and you sit down on the couch, the power's out, thank you PG&E, so you have nothing to watch, and you sit and you're just thinking, "What, what does your mind go to? Does it go to God or something God created? If you knew you had one week to live starting today, how would you live the next seven days of your life? Would you say, oh, I got to get that, that life experience bucket list? I got to get that thing checked off? I've got seven days. Got to climb some mountains and jump out of some airplanes and swim with crocodiles? <laughs> That's not on your list? Or would you be sharing the gospel of grace with everybody you know, every, fa- every family member, every friend, every coworker, every neighbor? Because you got seven days. What do you get really, really excited about? Were you jazzed to come to church today? Did you wake up and think, oh, we get to worship the Lord as a church today? What makes you the most angry or depressed or discouraged when you don't get what you want? These extreme emotional responses are really good indicators of false gods that we brought into the throne room of the thrice holy gods. You know that there are currently over 600 identified non-Christian religions in the United States. Over 600! you think we're not polytheistic. That number is ridiculously low. Remember, anything you love most above God, anything you trust more than God is a non-Christian religion. And so I would argue we have millions and millions of religions in this country. We far outceed whatever Moses and the Israelites experienced in their 400 years in Egypt. They don't know what polytheism is. We practice it. We live it. So what hope is there for us living in this radically polytheistic culture? What hope is there of us committing, submitting to this first commandment, have no other gods besides me? What hope is there for you or for me? Who can deliver us from ourselves? Remember, we make our gods. Who can deliver you from you? The answer is simple. You got to have a new heart. Right? I mean, you've got to have someone change your heart. More specifically, a changed heart that loves and trusts Jesus Christ most. You see, my beloved, the hardest part about obeying the first commandment is not knowledge. Most of you knew the first commandment before you came into today. And I would say it's not even willpower. The greatest problem with obeying the first commandment or any of the commandments of God is a desire to do it, a right desire, a gospel desire to do it. And so the only thing that will tear our hearts away from our misplaced trust and our misplaced love and all these idols that we bow down to is a greater affection, a greater desire for the living God through Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. Whatever else you put your trust in, it will fail you and it will become a false God to you. Most of you know that during our Lord's earthly ministry, he exercised perfect trust and perfect love in his heavenly Father. At the very beginning of his ministry, most of you know that after 40 days of fasting, he went out into the desert and he was tempted by Satan himself. And Satan came to him playing God, did he not? Acting like he was God. And he took Jesus up onto this high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said to our Lord, if you would fall down and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms. Our Lord's response is so precious and so tender and so powerful. He said, Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. No other gods but the God of Christ. He trusted in God and remained steadfast to God to obey his word, even to the point of death. So the book ends, the beginning of the ministry, in the desert, being tempted by Satan, and the end of the ministry, facing the cross. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed for God to make another way other than the cross. And then he said this, Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Perfect trust and perfect love, even as our Savior faced the torments of hell as he embraced the cross, receiving in his body, in his flesh, our sins, he said, your will first, God. I trust you first, God. I love you most, God. Jesus Christ never in his life, not one time for a single moment, not one thought did he not trust God and love God perfectly. Not one time. He never, ever brought a false God of any kind into the presence, into the throne room of the Father. Not power or money or sex or entertainment, not physical pain or loneliness or abandonment or suffering, all of which he experienced. He trusted and loved his Father perfectly. Now listen to this. And as a result, he lived a perfectly obedient life. And as a result, Jesus Christ was and is the most free man ever. Free. Christ was free. Do you know that? Not because he was God, but because he had a perfect relationship with the living God. Jesus Christ was free even when he was nailed to the cross. Now I want you to listen and I'll close. On the cross, Jesus was bound by our sins. That is true. When he was nailed to that Roman cross, he experienced the full weight of God's wrath, all the punishment that we rightly and uh, deserved. He endured, and in so doing, he was still free. He was still free. How is that? Freedom, my beloved, is not the absence of constraint. It's not doing whatever you want to do. Freedom is found in being and living as God has so decreed. And Christ was decreed to be the Savior of the world. and dying for our sins, Jesus, in loving obedience to his Father, submitted to his Father's desire to have a people, to have you forever and ever through his death and resurrection and by, by grace through faith, we become that holy people the Father wanted and the Son wanted and the Spirit wanted that we might be set free from this horrible bondage of sin and death that we might live as a free people in the glory of Christ. On the cross, he experienced all the agony of our disobedience and yet he was free. He was free. In John chapter 8, verse 28, listen. Jesus said to the Pharisees, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you've raised Him up on the cross, then you will know that I am He. He says, I am the Savior of the world. He who sent me, that's His Father, is with me. He, listen to this, this is so profound. This is John chapter 8, verse 29. He, the Father, has not left me the Son. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. The Father never had to be separated from the Son because the Son lived in perfect trust and perfect obedience and perfect love to the Father. There was no reason to separate. He was in a relationship of perfect trust and perfect love that granted perfect freedom even when he was dying on the cross. He, said, he then said in John eight thirty. as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, listen, saints, with all your might, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, you can finish it, and the truth will set you free. And then he said, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You're free from the power of sin. You're free from death. You're free to live a life that is not contrary to your image, but in line with your image. Sons and daughters of God, loving God and loving one another, and in so doing, following the commandments that you might have the freedom to glorify God. Freedom in knowing that in Christ... The Father, as he said to his son, is with you and he will never leave you alone because you have the perfect righteousness of the Savior right now. He said, no, I still sin. I still commit adultery. I still murder in my heart. I still lie. I still bring these false gods. True, but you have Christ and therefore you have his perfect righteousness and you have been set free to live in it. Christ offers to all who repent and believe this exclusive, chesed, loyal, love relationship with his Father that never ends. He offers that to all of us. Some of you by grace have received it and you know this love and you know this freedom and when you hear the laws and you read the laws, you, like the psalmist, say, I love the law of God. I want to meditate on it because you know there's freedom there. Some of you do not know that yet. If you're sitting here this morning, this sounds odd to you. That you do not understand this relationship with God the Father or the commands that He's given. If you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, then today is the day of salvation. Christ is calling you individually into this life changing, utterly transformative relationship with Him in Christ. He says to you, Repent and believe. Trust in Christ to save you, and you will be saved. Oh, how I love the law of God. Oh, how we should meditate on it day and night. My beloved, stop seeking, stop seeking freedom in your rebellion and your sin. Be the man or woman or child that God created you to be, an image bearer who loves God and loves one another in such a way that in our freedom, we cast all other false gods out of our lives. And we say with Christ, we are free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these these teachings are hard for those of us who know the Son, impossible for those who do not. Calvin was right, we're idol factories. Even during this time together as a church, I imagine we produced more idols in our own life. Father, this is not how you created and saved us to be. We are to be image bearers. We are to reflect your glory and honor in this church, in our families, and in this community. We are to live such holy lives that people will see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. We cannot do this, Father, apart from your Spirit. So I ask, Holy Spirit, you do a mighty work here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. That we would be a people who understand and submit fully to this first great commandment that we would actively through prayer and through the word of God and with our brothers and sisters cast out, destroy, and mortify every single God that is bringing a presence into your throne room. Every one, Lord. Utterly mortify it for your own glory. And I ask, Lord, that we would see your law as laws of freedom. Laws that set us free in the gospel of grace. I'm so thankful you gave it to us, Lord. You did not have to give us your law, but that you did. You did to reveal yourself, and you did to show us how to live. We're so thankful you did that. We're so thankful that Jesus Christ fulfilled this law perfectly, that we do not have to attain a righteousness of our own, but we rely upon the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord. Let us fall back to him again and again. Every time we stumble, every time we fall, every time we embrace that small G God, let us run to the cross and seek mercy and forgiveness and know that you give it to us fully and let us fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us when Christ comes again in glory. I'm so thankful for the gathering here this morning and the opportunity to preach this word. I pray you would take it to my heart and the hearts of those who have gathered that we might be faithful to it in Christ's name, amen.